first week of Lent, um, the first Tuesday of Lent, um, and the beginning of a struggle that prepares us to receive the resurrected Christ. So let's begin with the prayer of the first hour, as we always do. O Christ, the true light, who dost enlighten and sanctify every man that cometh into the world, let the light of thy countenance be signed upon us, that in it we may behold the unapproachable light, and guide our steps in the performance of thy commandments, by the intercessions of thine all immaculate mother and of all thy saints. Amen. Amen. So tonight we continue with the life of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos. And it's very appropriate that during Great Lent, we think about the life of the Theotokos. Because as you know, throughout all of Great Lent, or at least throughout the first five weeks of Great Lent, at the end of each week, we have as a reward the Akathist of the Theotokos. Um, and uh, of course, this is a celebration, a remembrance uh, at the end of the struggle of each week that anticipates and then celebrates the Annunciation. Right? We have two major uh, feasts during Great Lent that uh, relate to the Annunciation. There's the Feast of the Annunciation itself, which of course is, is according to the Minologion, so it has a fixed date. Uh, and um, could be a, it could be any day of the week, depending on the year. So it's the Minologion Feast of the Annunciation, which is a great feast, and is often called, many of the Holy Fathers call it a second Pascha, a second Passover, in other words. And then there is the Feast of the Akathistos Hymnos, of the Akathist Hymn, uh, which is always during the, on the Saturday of the fifth week, uh, and both those feasts celebrate the incarnation, the moment at which our Lord became man in the womb of the Theotokos. And many of the Holy Fathers say that when, our, when the first created humans, Adam and Eve, fell, three barriers were erected separating them from God. The first barrier was that of nature, Second barrier was that of sin, and the third barrier was that of death. And during Great Lent, the church remembers how our Lord and Savior overcame all those barriers. And that first barrier, that of nature, the barrier that, that was, of course, created by the corruption of our nature and by its separation from God, that barrier was overcome by the Incarnation the moment of the incarnation, that, that gap, that infinite gap that separated God and man, that, uh, that gap was, was brought together, it was bridged. And we have a restoration of unity. And we have the restoration actually of the pre-eternal will of God, which was for all creatures to be in union with him. Spiritual creatures, but also material creatures. And of course, man is at the border of the two and bridges those two types of creation, the spiritual and the material. And by becoming man, God united himself with all of creation, all of his creatures, angels, but also the material creation and sanctified everything. And then of course, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, he overcame the barriers of sin and death. It made it possible for us to unite with him. And so this is what we remember during Great Lent. And we, we, in, to remember those events properly, we prepare through fasting. And it's not just on the level of memory. It's on the level also of participation. Because when Christ suffers during Holy Week, we suffer with him. And when Christ resurrects on the glorious Sunday of the resurrection, on the day of the resurrection, we resurrect with him. And of course, we already resurrected with him, died and resurrected with him in the baptismal font when we were baptized. But we also die to our sins, the sins that we repented of. And we resurrect with him in our, in our repentance. 
And of course, we unite with him in the sacrament of the holy mystery of the Eucharist, of the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is how we're saved. And if we die in this process of preparation, and if we die having partaken of Christ's death and resurrection, and having partaken of his body and blood, we're saved. This is how Orthodox Christians, this is how human beings, this is how God has willed for human beings to be saved. And so it's very appropriate, again, that we are thinking about the Theotokos during this, this, this season. Today we continue with a chapter that's entitled The Flight into Egypt, which is chapter 14. We are approximately halfway through the, this very thick book, and so we're making good progress. Um, last week we talked about the slaughter of the innocents, how Herod the Great ordered the slaughter of thousands of children, according to the Holy Fathers, 14,000 children, um, because he feared that he would be replaced by the Messiah that had been born, as it was reported to him, by the three Magi. And uh, as we noted last time, this affected the family of the Holy Forerunner directly, because the authorities came searching for John, thinking that John was the child that had been born, because everyone knew that he had been born in a miraculous way, that his parents were elderly when he was born. And this led to the death of the Holy Forerunner's parents, St. Zacharias and St. Elizabeth. St. Zacharias was, was assassinated, was murdered in the temple when he was serving. And St. Elizabeth died in the wilderness trying to protect her son. And St. John grew up in the wilderness in a miraculous way, overshadowed by the grace of God. And he emerged from the wilderness when he was ready to preach. And it's very fitting for the voice of the word to emerge from the wilderness in this manner. But this also affected the family of St. Joseph, the Holy Theotokos, the Most Holy Theotokos, and our Lord as well. We learn in the, in the Gospel of St. Matthew that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek to destroy, to seek, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Right, so St. Joseph, we've seen him more than once receiving these messages from angels in his dreams. And this is, of course, we've talked about this, but it's worth repeating that we are not to believe in all of our dreams. In fact, we are to ignore most of our dreams. We're to ignore them because usually they are either the product of our own mind as we sleep, the things that we've been thinking about all day resurface. The dr dreams are also often the product of demonic suggestion and demonic influence, especially if we've, if we've endured a lot of demonic suggestions during the day, those same thoughts surface during the night. But sometimes demons do enter our dreams at night and, and, and suggest to us and, and manifest themselves sometimes uh, in, in horrible and very vivid ways. These are what people call nightmares. But a very, very small percentage of dreams to a, a are, are divine revelations, and they are granted to a very small percentage of people. And in particular, it's those who have purified their heart, who have opened themselves to God, and then God reveals himself in their thoughts, and in their heart, and in their, uh, in their sleep. We know that the Holy Fathers prayed while, the, while they slept. And so it's a, these dreams are a function of the inner purity of St. Joseph, but also of his unceasing prayer. And so in this purity, in this prayer, the angels manifested themselves uh, to, to St. Joseph. And St. Joseph receives the messages since he is the guardian of our Lord and he is the minister. He ministers to him. He receives directions from his father. So we see the Holy Family 
and this is a phrase that's often used by the Roman Catholics, a holy family. Uh, remember that St. Joseph was very elderly. He was in his 80s when this happened. And so legally speaking, they are a family. They are a holy family as well. We shouldn't understand this in the way that uh, popular culture does as Joseph being in love with the Theotokos in a carnal way or in a, in a worldly way, right? This is a purely spiritual relationship and a, and a, a very serious response, profound responsibility that St. Joseph felt for the Theotokos and for Christ. Um, but we see the Holy Family fleeing. And according to tradition, uh, there were four travelers, perhaps more, but only four are mentioned in tradition. St. Joseph, his son, St. James, the brother of our Lord, who became later the first bishop of Jerusalem, the Theotokos, and of course, the infant Christ. And one would think that when God comes into the world, all creation would bow. All men would be overawed. It would be immediately apparent who he was, and people would have no choice but accept him. But in fact, as it happened, as our God willed it, the exact opposite occurred. Yes, there were signs. Yes, there were miracles. But that was also, there was also humility. Because the household of St. Joseph was a humble household. The Theotokos, even though uh, one of the most, actually the most virtuous woman, was also very modest. And our Lord came into very humble circumstances. After all, he was born in a manger, in a stable. He was born in a stable among the animals. And there was no place for the Theotokos to stay. Uh, when, when, um, when it was time for him to be born. And we see him fleeing now, being a refugee from his own land, being pursued by evil men who sought to kill him. This is the opposite of all the things that our, our, our vanity teaches us. Our vanity really is what drives these ideas that, that, that God ought to, be, ought to overwhelm everyone, that he ought to be, uh, have his entire power in display. Of course, God knew exactly what he was doing, and this is all according to his providence. And in fact, it had all been prophesied by the holy prophets, uh, who had prophesied both the flight into Egypt and his return from Egypt. But this persecution, this flight into Egypt of our Lord teaches us something very important. And it, in fact, it resonates with something that he himself said, that because, because he was persecuted, his followers will also be persecuted. Because he was a refugee, his followers will also be refugees, right? This is something that our Lord speaks, he reveals to us with authority. We often want to believe that uh, divine favor, that prosperity is a sign of divine favor. Uh, there's something today called even the prosperity gospel that uh, we follow the gospel in order to be prosperous. Uh, again, that's related to the previous topic we talked about, the worldly glory. Right? It is all driven by our vanity. But in fact, our Lord tells us the opposite. And, it's, and it makes complete sense that it's the opposite. Because remember, we live in a fallen world. In this fallen world, which has rebelled against man, because man has rebelled against God, is inhabited by men and spirits who are in rebellion against God. So we have this chaotic situation. Nature is rebelling against man. Man rebels against God. Man fights man 
and kills his brother. Right? We have this ultimate fragmentation. And each person is possessed, each rational being, human being and angel, and fallen angels, that is, are possessed by self-love, possessed by pride, possessed by vanity, vainglory. And so this describes every human civilization that ever was, from Adam's fall to the present moment. And further, large numbers, untold numbers of people over the centuries, over the, over the millennia, were slaves to fallen angels, who of course were also possessed by self-love, pride, and vainglory. And they're slaves in multiple ways. They're slaves to their passions. They're sla- enslaved to the demons because they, they've chained themselves to worshiping the demons. They've, they've given themselves over to the demons through worship of demons. This is what polytheism is, paganism, and even heresy. And uh, many of them, without even knowing it perhaps, have been possessed by these demons. Others their possession is so extreme that it's apparent to everyone. Uh, many, their possession is not as it's more subtle and is only manifested at certain moments, especially when they come c- close to something holy or someone holy. And they react in unpredictable ways, in ways that are completely out of character. And so th- that describes again, there are such people, there are untold numbers, millions, billions perhaps across human history that have been in this condition. And so when the word of God comes and becomes, uh, comes into the world and becomes a man, all these people are agitated. They're agitated by his mere presence. And they're challenged by his words later when he speaks, when he's, when he's a grown man and he speaks and he challenges our self-love and he challenges our pride and he challenges our vainglory and he rebukes us for our passions and our sins. And he drives out the demons. This disrupts. It disrupts the system that we live in. The demonic system, the demonic webs that, have, that are encrusted over all of creation and all, over all of human society. And so it makes complete sense that when this, when this God becomes man and comes into this world, that from the moment of his birth, he's persecuted. His mother was persecuted during her pregnancy. So it's from the moment of his conception that he's persecuted. Because all, he's disrupting all these layers of demonic activity and human pride and vanity and self-love. Right? Herod, for example, slaughtered all the innocents because his self-love was challenged. Because his vanity was challenged. Right? So that illustrates the point we're, we're making. At the same, in the same way, Christians who are striving to fulfill the commandments of God are persecuted because they too disrupt the layers upon layers of demonic activity in the world, in their own lives, in the world around them. And, and, and the demons attempt to besiege and enter their soul, and also in the demons' control of other people around them. And so those who wish to live a pious life, says St. Paul, will be persecuted. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, says the Lord. That's not, that's not just a suggestion. That's, that's not a possibility that he's uh, recounting. It's, it's the truth, the future. Every Christian is persecuted in one way or another. And it's according to God's will that we're persecuted. Thousands, millions of Christians have been persecuted by uh, their governments. The Roman government, prior to St. Constantine, persecuted Christians. The governments of the various cities of the Greco-Roman world and beyond, prior to St. Constantine, persecuted Christians. Later, the Turks came and persecuted Christians. Even before the Turks, there were other invaders who invaded the Roman lands, Christian lands, and they, they persecuted Christians. 
I read the life of St. Nicholas, who's in Vunena, in Thessaly, outside of Larissa. And he was a Byzantine soldier that was visiting monastics when the region was overrun by the Avars, who were Turks from Central Asia, the same Avars who besieged Constantinople in 626, along with the Persians, and the Theotokos miraculously saved the city. This, at the same years, uh, St. Nicholas was captured with his soldiers and tortured, and tortured. Now these Avars had no reason to convert him to their own religion. There was, they weren't there to convert people. They weren't like the Muslims that came later. The Avars were just raiders. They just raided and stole things. But they captured him, and the demons that possessed them took control of the situation. And they, they, were, they tried to get St. Nicholas with his soldiers. St. Demetrius, I'm sorry, St. Demetrius in Vunana. They tried to get St. Demetrius to renounce Christ. To renounce Christ. For what reason? There was no human reason. There was no, it was just the demons. And this is repeated this is repeated multiple times across history. We have the, the, the Romans, we have various barbarians like the Avars, the Turks who for four to 500 years, in many parts of Greece, many parts of Greece were under Turkish rule for 500 years um, or more. They also persecuted Christians. And then of course we have the terrible events of the 20th century starting with the Russian revolution and the spread of communism across the Orthodox lands and the Greek civil war in the 1940s, where millions, the 20th century produced millions of confessors, millions of saints who died in prisons, who died in gulags, who were summarily executed, who were tortured through various methods that we can even not, we're not even conceive of. Then there are those who are persecuted by their own relatives, other Orthodox Christians. We have many saints who are persecuted by, by their families, by their fathers, um, by their siblings. Uh, we have other Orthodox Christians who are persecuted by their neighbors. And this is all an indication that something is, it's not just hatred for Christians. There's something deeper going on. It's not just, in other words, it's not just a competition between paganism and Christianity that explains it, or a competition between Christianity and Islam that explains it. There's something, or competition between Christianity and communism that explains it. It goes beyond that. There is that in those cases, but it goes beyond that. It goes down to the very fiber, to the, to the deep structures of our world, the fallen world that's under the captivity of the demons it's demonic agitation, the demons agitated. And so that leads to when they're agitated enough, they cause a lot of trouble and they lead to, and they, they, they defeat themselves though, because when it comes to the shedding of Christian blood, confessing Christ, that blood exercises. It drives away the demons. It drives them away. And so for example, in the 20th century, with the millions of Christians who were killed, that blood that was spilled became the seed of the regeneration of Christian society. That blood that was spilled exercised, drove away the, the, the spirits that had, that had brought this terrible evil upon their land. And communism fell like, like it was wiped away like cobwebs when people thought it would take a world war to drive those evil regimes out of those lands. And so this is a reality of the Christian life that we will face adversity in surprising places, coming from surprising directions, even suffering innocently, but our Lord suffered innocently. And he endured tremendous persecution during his life as a child and as an adult. And so we have the persecution of our Lord, he, the flight into Egypt. What, what I really enjoyed in this chapter was the detailed description of the journey 
because I, I, before I read the chapter, I did not realize that our Lord and his, and his mother and St. Joseph and St. James had traveled so far south into what's called Upper Egypt. The southern parts of the Nile are called Upper Egypt, and the northern parts of the Nile are called Northern Egypt. That's because of the flow of the water, right? The, the Nile flows from the south to the north, from Africa into the Mediterranean. And so, obviously, when you're towards close to the source of a river, you're higher than when you're at the delta, right? And so that's why it's called Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. I did not realize that they had reached, uh, they had traveled very far south in the Nile Valley and stopped in all these places, places associated with the history of the Israelites and places associated with the history of the Egyptians as well. But what we see is a pattern, a pattern that continues during our Lord's ministry in Palestine. So one thing that occurs more than once, and this is in the, uh, in the hagiographical tradition of the church and also in, the, in, in some of the apocryphal texts, is the, the fall of the idols, the fall of the idols. Our Lord, as an infant, travels into Egypt, and in the towns that he passes through, the, the idols of the pagans, of the polytheists, crumble and fall. Town after town after town, idol after idol, temple after temple. At one point, there was a temple with 365 idols in it that all crumbled. And in some of those places, the inhabitants of those towns marveled at what had happened. And in other places, the inhabitants of those, of those other towns persecuted more. They drove St. Joseph and the Theodokos in Christ out of town with clubs and axes. But what does this say? What is, what, what, what is the reality that stands behind these stories? The reality is related to something else, too. Wherever our Lord went, there were these healings of demoniacs. Demoniacs coming, the, the, the child of a priest, of a pagan priest. right? This other young woman who was tormented by a demon. That particular uh, story is very moving because it's the Theotokos who heals this young woman. Who, is, who would break her chains and rip off her clothes and run around and throw rocks at people. And the Theotokos saw her and had pity on her. And of course, what she did when she, she didn't pity her for the sake of pity, she prayed for her. She interceded for her, what she does for us. And upon, at the Theotokos intercessions, at the Theotokos intercession, the demon left her. And the people saw this demon leave as a, as a, as a man running from this woman and, and screaming how he'd been harmed by Mary and her son. Right? The two phenomena are, are phenomena are related. The phenomenon of the, uh, uh, the, the, the breaking of the idols, the collapse of the idols, and the, the, the driving out, the exorcism of the demons. Because as we said earlier, our Lord came to this world to take down these barriers, but he also came down to this world to clean house, as we say, to clean house. He came down to drive the demons out, to drive them out of the land and out of men's hearts. And so, as we said, that man up to this point had been enslaved by the demons through the passions, through demonic possession, and through worshiping demons instead of God. Many people say that the pagans worshipped allegories and, and personifications of nature. And in some cases, one might say, you might, even find, you might even find pagan authors saying this, writing this, that it's a, they're rationalizing their ancestral religion and saying they're, they're worshipping some kind of personification. But this is a rationalization. The reality is 
that pagans, polytheists, and anyone who wasn't worshiping the true God was actually worshiping not imaginary things, but realities. They were, they were worshiping fallen angels who presented themselves to human beings as deities. And once the human beings consented to worshiping them, those demons would then have authority over them and would possess them. It would cause them to do all manner of evil things. This is, this is evident in the rites of human sacrifice that uh, happened in pl various places of the ancient world. In ancient Greece, uh, human sacrifice was not the norm. But there are myths of human sacrifice, like the myth of Iphigenia, who was the daughter of Agamemnon. Right? And those myths are based on something. Archaeologists have found sites in Greece that where human sacrifice in, in, in prehistoric times was practiced. The places where there was a lot of human sacrifice was over here in the New World, among the Aztecs and the Maya, but also in the old, in the old world among the, uh, the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians. Where there, the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians are just a, a, a Western tribe of the Phoenicians. They, they're from, in the Bible, they're, called, they're all called Canaanites. Um, and they worshiped Baal, who is Satan himself. And they sacrificed infants to Baal. Uh, there are also other evil things that happened in, that the demons caused people to do in, the, uh, in these pagan religions, including. Um, uh, ritual sex, right, which happened in temples. All these things are all evidence of demonic possession and de demonic delusion. And so the demons had put these ideas, and in many cases, the demons actually spoke. When, when the ancient Greeks or the ancient, other ancient peoples talk about oracles speaking, those are demons speaking. Right? There's a story in Plutarch, where Plutarch is recounting a story that he heard from these travelers. Plutarch is an ancient Greek writer who wrote uh, in the generation after the apostles. So in the late 100s, in, in the late, in, in the, the 80s and 90s, and in the early 100s. Okay, so about 40 to 50 years after our Lord during the, the lives of his life overlapped with some of the apostles, but in their, in their late life. Plutarch heard this story that he relates in one of his texts where these, these travelers were, were, um, were sailing by the island of the Strophades, which there, there, now there are monasteries there. Those are Orthodox people that live there. But back then it was pagan. And the, the, the sailors heard around the time of the, of, of, the crucifixion of Christ, some of the Holy Fathers calculate, a voice shouting from the mountaintop that the great pan has fallen. The great pan has fallen. Who's pan? Pan is the, the, the god, the ancient Greek quote-unquote god, the demon, that appears to men half man, half goat, with the horns, right? That's, that's characteristic depiction of demons. The great pan has fallen. Another such instance is um, in the city of Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. And it's the place where Christians were first called Christians. Today, Antioch is in southern Turkey. Um, but historically, it's part of Syria. And in Antioch, outside of those city walls, was a suburb called Daphne. And at Daphne, there was an oracle of Apollo, like there was in Delphi, but there was another one in, in, in Daphne, uh, outside of the city walls of Antioch. And that oracle kept giving prophecies. Then the Christians built a church in Daphne, because it's a suburb. They built a church near the oracle, 
And they brought the relics of St. Babylus, who was one of the bishops of Antioch, who was martyred. And they brought, they brought the relics of the saint into the church. And they placed him in the church to be venerated. And when Julian the Apostate came in the, in the 360s, he was the, the, the last pagan emperor. St. Constantine's nephew, who became a pagan. He was a Christian, but he became a pagan at once he became emperor. And he wanted to see the, or all, the, all the oracles. He wanted to make sure the, all the oracles were properly working. So he went to Daphne and he asked the priests, where are the oracle? Why weren't there any prophecies? And they said that the oracle has stopped giving prophecies a long time ago. And so Julian the apostate uh, had, he, he, he had a number of, of seers, of, of magicians, ask Apollo why, why there weren't any more, any more oracles, any more prophecies coming from this place. And Apollo responded, and this is true. Apollo responded and said, because there are these dirty bones nearby. And so Julian then figured it out. The Christians had brought bones, had brought human remains, the relics of St. Babylus, near the oracle, and the oracle stopped working. The demon was driven away. And so the, the emperor ordered the Christians to remove the relics of St. Babylus, and they, they took them and put them somewhere in another church in the countryside. And within a few days, the whole temple of Apollo burned to the ground. St. John Chrysostom tells this story. And when St. John Chrysostom tells the story, it's very vivid. And so he describes the story as a wrestling match between Apollo and St. Babylus. They're wrestling, and St. Babylus pins Apollo to the ground. And then St. John says, and Apollo could not even endure the dust of Babylus. Not even the dust of Babylus, meaning his bones and the, you know, his, his relics. And so St. John Chrysostom then goes on this long excursus, how the relics of the saints have exorcised, driven the demons out of the countryside and renewed the landscape, renewed the earth. And if that's true, if that's true of the relics of the saints, it's also it's preeminently true of our Lord, who drove, drove these demons out. The, the demons inhabiting those statues, a statue by itself is not, of course, demonic, but when it's worshipped for a demon, the demon inhabits it. And so our Lord drove those demons out and the statues crumbled. His presence, without him doing anything. One of the Holy Fathers says that he was hidden in his mother's cloak in his mother's womb embrace but he was acting as god there's a question didn't one of the philosophers there were philosophers who became christians the probably the most famous one is a saint saint justin martyr also called saint justin the philosopher and then there are other holy fathers that say that the greek philosophers uh, some of the Greek philosophers actually were converted to Christ in Hades because, as you know, our Lord preached in Hades as well. He went all the way down to Hades and he preached there with his soul. And, and many believed and were saved. And some of them may have been the ancient Greek philosophers. And the ancient Greek philosophers knew enough. They figured enough out. Uh, they, they figured at least, at least this out, that the way that the gods were being depicted and, 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 and described and how they were being worshipped has nothing to do with the divine nature. And almost every ancient philosopher actually believed that there was only one God. Right? That there was actually Plato, for example, and Socrates. That there was only one creator, one demiurge. Um, and, and so um, we have this exorcism that happens. And this is presaging what was to happen in the rest of the world, but also in Egypt. Because within 300 years, the period of 300 years, Egypt became a Christian land. Prior to our Lord's coming to Egypt, Egypt was a symbol of sin and death. Remember when we say that the Israelites back in the time, back in the, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites 
they fled Egypt and that's, that's their flight, that's their escape from death and sin and slavery. We say that not just because the Israelites were enslaved there, but also because the Egyptians were the most famous of the polytheistic societies in the ancient world. They had a, a, a wide variety of deities, beastly and, and human-like. Uh, they might be comparable with the Hindus in Egypt, uh, sorry, in India. Um, and so within a, a very short period of time, 300 years is not a lot of time, historically speaking, the, Egypt became a Christian land. And the Egyptians, the descendants of all those people that our Lord passed by, some of them converted to just through his presence. But later, the apostles came to Egypt. You know that St. Peter went to Alexandria, St. Mark, and many other saints preached up and down the Nile, and the Egyptians converted to Christ. And Egypt is the homeland of Orthodox monasticism, and we know that our Lord blessed the deserts of Egypt. And in the places where he stayed, monasteries uh, sprouted uh, sometimes decades afterwards. In some cases, in the case of Skitis, a couple centuries later, Skitis is where St. Uh, Makarios the Great and his monks lived. Right? These were men who were completely dedicated to God, men and women, because there were also female monastics, completely dedicated to God, completely dedicated to the continual remembrance of his name, of the name of Jesus Christ, which drives out demons. Um, Another story that's very interesting is the story of the thieves. And so back then, there were between cities, right? There were long distances. And when you kind of traveled beyond the agricultural zones that surrounded the cities, because each, each polis had its hora. And that's where we get the word hora from. Uh, the hora are the horafia, the, the fields beyond the, the city, and then beyond that is wilderness. And so the, in the territories between the cities and the roads and the mountains, mountain passes, those were inhabited by thieves. Thieves would, would rob and murder, um, and various governments would try to control this problem, but you couldn't do this, they couldn't monitor the situation every day, for seven days a week. Um, there were times when government forces, Roman soldiers, local garrisons uh, could not respond or were not within range. And so these were areas where the thieves uh, dominated. And they, they usually what they would do is they would force caravans to pay tolls, illegal tolls. Uh, in other cases, they would just rob the caravans of all their goods and then they would go and sell them and make money. Um, and so there was one of these places where, uh, where St. Joseph and the Theotokos had to pass through, and they knew that there were a lot of thieves, and it was, so they went through the, in the middle of the night so they wouldn't be seen or detected. But in the event, they were detected. And there were these two thieves that were sleeping by the road who were supposed to wake up the other thieves when someone came. And so um, the two thieves were Gestas and Dismas. And the one thief that woke up approached the Theotokos to see what she was carrying because she might have gold. And when he saw her beauty and he saw the beauty of the child, right, he marveled. He marveled at the, at, at, at the, um, at the beauty of the child. And I'm going to find his words here. It says, these must rouse from his sleep, arose and went across the road to the mother of God to see what she held at her breast. Seeing the Christ child, he marveled at his beauty and remarked, if God were to take human flesh, he would not be more beautiful than this child. He didn't know what he was saying, but what he was saying was true. Then Dismas turned to Gestas and said, 
I beseech thee to let these persons go by quietly. Let not our comrades be roused and perceive the coming of these people. And then the Theotokos turned to Dismas and said, My child will reward thee richly for having spared him this day. The Lord God will receive thee to his right hand and grant thee pardon of thy sins. These were the two thieves that were nailed next to Christ on the cross, on their own crosses, many years later. Theotokos prophesied here. She prophesied that he, he would be at, the, at, the Lord, at our Lord's right hand and that he would, all of his sins would be forgiven. Decades later, that happened. He was nailed on the cross on the same day as our Lord. They found themselves hanging in the same place. And then he asked him for forgiveness. Remember me, O Lord, when, you, when thou comest in thy kingdom, he said. And our Lord remembered him. And he says that your sins are forgiven. And so here we have the thief who is in his first encounter showed mercy. And thus he obtained mercy. Right? This is another manifestation of the, the, the Beatitudes. He showed mercy and he obtained mercy. Um, then we have the return. The return back to Palestine. And the return comes at a very specific historical moment. Uh, the, the historicity, the, speci the specificity of the gospel stories, the gospel narratives, demonstrates their historicity. The, the, the specific details they give demonstrate that they're historical, that, that they're historically accurate. Um, because we have uh, the death of Herod the Great. The death of Herod the Great is a historical event. And it's revealed at the same time to St. Joseph, right? So um, Herod had persecuted uh, our Lord. And when he died, his kingdom was divided up into four territories called the Tetrarchy. Right? Tetrarchy means the rule of four. So the Romans were making these decisions and they subdivided the territories um, between his sons. The, the first territory was under his eldest son, Herod Archelaus, and that's mentioned in the gospel. He was based in Jerusalem. And then there was a territory under Herod Antipas, which is Galilee, which is where Nazareth was. And then there was the territory of uh, Philip the Tetrarch, uh, which is on the other side of the, on the eastern side of the Lake of Tiberias. Um, and then there is uh, another territory under Salome, uh, one of, I believe Herod, that's Herod's daughter. Uh, and so we have the Tetrarchy. Of course, the Romans controlled everything. These were basically on paper uh, kingdoms. Eventually Herod Archelaus, um, uh, his kingdom becomes a Roman province. Right. So by the time our Lord is crucified, Judea and Jerusalem were under the Romans directly, directly ruled as a Roman province. Um, and so these are historical events. And so when Herod dies, the angel comes to Joseph, St. Joseph, um, and he tells him to return back. Uh, this is in the uh, Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2, verse 22. Um, and Joseph arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. He came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called the Nazarene. So in this, we have prophecy being fulfilled. St. Joseph didn't intend to fulfill the prophecy in a propagandistic sense. right? Um, similarly, the return from Egypt fulfills another prophecy. Um, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's recorded in St. Matthew um, 2.15. Right? But that's an old that's what that's a prophecy from the Old Testament. And so 
the, these aren't prophecies that the Theotokos or Saint Joseph intended to fulfill. They were obe obeying angels and responding to circumstance. But the prophecies fulfilled. The holy prophets had foreseen this. Whatever the prophets say is about Christ. So they had foreseen all of this. It had been revealed to them. Um, and so he shall be called the Nazarene. Because he went to Nazareth. And St. Joseph continued his previous way of life as a carpenter. And then it says at St. Luke, St. Luke says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, this is something that needs a little bit of explanation. And it's, we've talked about this before, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind everyone again. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit. Now, one might say that how, you know, if he's God, then even as an infant, he's wise and all-knowing. And, and so why does he need to learn? Why, why does he need to grow? Why, need, why does his spirit need to wax? It says to wax strong in spirit. And how is it appropriate for God to develop physically? Shouldn't God had, have just appeared as a man, as an adult, as a fully formed man? Because he's perfect God, so he should be perfect man from the moment of, of, of his appearance. But in fact, our Lord is wiser than we are, and he knows why he does these things. He voluntarily submitted to all of this. He voluntarily submitted to the development, to the natural development of a human being. Not that he wasn't wise, even as an infant, but his, he, voluntar he voluntarily submitted to the natural development of his human nature. Right, the natural development of his human nature, where he grew as a child through all the stages of childhood and began to speak at the moment when children speak and began to uh, wax str uh, strong right, and grow all voluntarily. Why? In order to sanctify everything that we are, in order to sanctify our entire being. Had he appeared just like that, as an adult, we would say he's not human. He's only human in appearance. Did he have a childbirth? Was he born? Did he have a childhood? Did he grow up like we did and go through all the challenges that we went through growing up? Did, does he feel hunger? Does he hurt? Is he ever thirsty? Those are all attributes of our humanity. We would have questioned all that and would have said, okay, you're, you're telling us all these things, but do you know what it's like to be us? But now he can tell us, yes, I am one of you. I went through all those stages. I, I, I felt all the pain of a human being. He felt all the hunger of a human being, all the thirst of a human being. We do this involuntarily without willing it. It's just something that happens to us. But our Lord voluntarily submitted himself to that. He humbled himself for us. He took everything that we had on himself in humility when he didn't have to. He didn't have to do any of that. But he did it out of infinite love in order to heal us, in order to be with us, in order to bring us up where he is, which he did through his ascension. And then he shares his body with us and his blood. And his body and his blood become our body and blood. And his life becomes our life. And we are deified. We become, we share not mere, not only, not only in his humanity, but we also share in the in his divinity as a gift, in his in the grace of his divinity. And, and the Holy Father say, we become gods by grace. God became man in order for man to become God, says St. Athanasios, by which he means man shares in, God grants him a share in everything that he has. Right? This is why he be, took, took on everything, all of the aspects of our nature. So I'm going to pause here for tonight, and I'm going to ask for questions. If anyone has any questions about what I said, 
or wants to make any connections, uh, you're, you're free to do so. You're, you're welcome, in fact, to do this. Okay, well, if there aren't any questions, then I think we could all do a podipno now. Remember that tonight we have the great compline, and in the towards the end of the great compline, we read the great canon of Saint Andrew of Crete, which is it's called the great canon because it's the longest canon ever written. We don't read it all tonight. We only we only read a section this whole week. Monday through Thursday, we, we divide it up into four sections and we read the four sections. And uh, that is, if you want to see how the church reads the Bible, read the great canon, because it is the, uh, uh, the, the roadmap for, under, for the spiritual understanding of the Bible, the spiritual understanding of all these things. In particular, it has to do with the soul, how the soul experiences sin and how the soul uh, moves to towards redemption through repentance. Right? It's called a tropological um, interpretation of scripture. But St. Andrew starts from Adam and goes all the way into the New Testament. And he shows how each figure of the Old Testament and many figures of the New Testament, in fact, are examples for us to follow, examples for our spiritual lives. And really they are, um, they, they, they are to help us repent Right? The, the, one of the refrains is, uh, oh soul, why have you rep repented yet? Right? He's talking to his own soul, but of course, when we read it out loud, we're speaking to our soul as well. So if there aren't any questions, let's go to Compline and, and read the canon of St. Andrew. And if you don't know how to do Compline, it's not that hard, but at least read the canon of St. Andrew, the section for tonight. Uh, you can find it online. Father? Yes. It's probably not really important, but um, which of uh, Joseph's family members was with them? Which of well, Joseph's children? The only ones mentioned are St. Joseph and St. James, the brother of God. Okay, because some, some, there's some debate that there was more like his daughter too. and Well, you know, his daughter had children, grown children. I, I don't think his daughter was present because... Um, Again, she had she had her own family. Um, there are probably the the younger boys, Joseph's boys, um, may have been there. Obviously, Saint James um, was there, but that's the only one that's mentioned outside of Saint Joseph. And Saint James is depicted in the icons, um, right? He's the young he's the young man leading, often leading the donk. There's a Teotokos sitting on a donkey, or sometimes a Teotokos following a donkey, and St. James is there. Um, and um, they, uh, he's, he's leading. Um, there are other uh, family members uh, that are um, part, that, that are fo become followers of our Lord later on. Uh, like St. John, the theologian, and St. James were St. Joseph's grandsons, their mother. And Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was uh, uh, St. Joseph's son-in-law, right? This is why his, his daughter um, is not, I believe her name is Salome. She's one of the mirror-bearing women, but she's not there fleeing. Um, the... Um, there's also um, St. Judas and St. Simon, who are also brothers of our Lord, um, who may have been present. If there are other sons of Joseph present, it, it was probably them. Uh, there's also Iosis, Josis, um, who is another son. Um, so there may be two or three other sons present. Um, but the only, the only one depicted in the icons and mentioned by tradition is St. James. And St. James was the one, one son that, that uh, St. Joseph's biological son, 
who had the closest relationship with our Lord because he offered him his inheritance. The others didn't. Even the ones who became his apostles later, initially, they would not give Jesus uh, a part of their inheritance, whereas St. James gave Jesus all of his inheritance. And so um, he was the one closest to our Lord, and he became, he became a bishop, the first bishop of Jerusalem. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, there was... Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, okay, everyone. Well, thank you for uh, logging in tonight. And we shall continue our discussion next week with the next chapter in the life of the Virgin Mary, the Theotokos.